Right, grab your Bibles. Let's go to Exodus chapter 20, where we're going to sort of kick off a mini-series uh, within Exodus on, uh, if you will, the, on, on, uh, on the Ten Commandments and uh, look at uh, the Ten Commandments one by one over the coming weeks. And all we're going to do today is intro uh, these ten uh, words, and, um, and here's what God says in Exodus chapter 20, uh, verses 1 and 2. Go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is God's word. You may be seated. It's going to be quick these next few weeks, isn't it? Uh, so the Ten Commandments are something I think most Americans know there's such a thing as the Ten Commandments. We, uh, they're probably the most publicly displayed uh, pieces of Scripture anywhere. They're in courthouses and public buildings. They're in schools, libraries. They're all over our nation. But they're also some of the least known. And what I mean is that very few people actually know what the Ten Commandments are if you ask them to name, name them. In fact, in 2007, there was some research done and uh, they wanted to sort of gauge Americans' knowledge on various subjects, like just from the absolutely inane and trivial to the sacred. So they, they asked questions like, do you know uh, where the ingredients to all beef patties comes from? And 80% of Americans could tell you that's part of a Big Mac, right? They, they asked them to name one one of the Ten Commandments, and I think 60% of Americans knew that thou shalt not kill was, was a, a commandment. 35%, unbelievably, a massive number of people could name all six children from the Brady Bunch, which means they were talking to a certain generation, right? Some of you are like, I've never even seen an episode of the Brady Bunch. Um, but only 14% of people could name all Ten Commandments. They just didn't know what it was. Part of that's because in some ways we might say the best that we could say about the Ten Commandments within American culture is that they are white noise. You know, they're everywhere, but we don't really see them. And the worst we could say is we feel like they're irrelevant. What does it matter that there's this, you know, millennia old law code that we should be listening to? Um, CNN did an article uh, several years ago about two atheists that were getting together to write a book on where they wanted to sort of crowdsource and go, we want to see if we can come up with a whole new set of commandments we don't need. They're, these are old, ancient uh, texts. I think we can do better. Let me read you a uh, part of the article. This is how it starts. It says, what if instead of climbing Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God, Moses had turned to the Israelites and asked, hey, what do you guys think we should do? Considering the Hebrews' bad behavior in the Bible, what with the coveting of neighbors' wives and murdering their own brothers, that might have been a disastrous idea. But in our own more enlightened age, we're perfectly capable of crowdsourcing our own commandments, or at least that's what a new project would have us believe. Lex Baer, an executive at Airbnb, and John, I don't know if it's Figdor or Fedor, a humanist chaplain at Stanford University, delivered their own 10 non-commandments in a book they co-wrote, Atheist Heart, Humanist Mind. Baer said the book forced him to clarify and articulate his own beliefs, and he thought others could benefit from doing the same. So here's what they did. Maybe a publicity stunt, get people to buy their book. They actually put it out there on social media and said, hey, for any would-be Moseses that will go up on the mountain and bring us back one of the 10 non-commands, 
we'll give you $10,000. 2,800 people or so submitted uh, their, their own command and, and they put all those in front of a, a panel of 13 judges and they came up with the 10 non-commandments. I'm not going to give you all of them. You can look them up on the internet, but let me, let me show you some of these. Number one, be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Number four reads, every person has the right to control of their body. Number five says, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Six, be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. Number seven, treat others as you would want them to treat you and can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. Number nine, there is no one right way to live. And number 10, leave the world a better place than you found it. Ah, Lovely. Now leave that for a second. Think about like that doesn't take a lot of reflection, but just look at some of that. Look at number five. God's not necessary, but number seven is basically quoting Matthew 5, 17, the golden rule. We don't need God, but we do like one of his rules, right? Does anybody actually believe number nine? Does anybody actually live this way? There is no one right way to live. Listen, that sounds all well and good in our culture of, you know, we just have this pluralistic culture where you can believe anything and there is no right way to live. But let me tell you, you get on the right, the wrong side of a current cultural issue right now. You, you let a wrong word slip from your mouth, you will be slapped down like the most extreme fundamentalist, right? People will say, you can't hold that. You can't believe that. You're on the wrong side of history. You're crazy for believing that because apparently there's a right way to live. Does anybody find it ironic that these are called the 10 non-commands and they're all commands, right? See, see what's happening is we've gotten to a place where we're not sure these commandments are something we should be listening to. And so we've relegated them to kind of this ancient text and what should we do with them and how should we respond to them? I want to take some time over the coming weeks to just go, all right, let's look at them and, and, and let's see what they have to say for themselves. I, by the way, I had to laugh when I read this quote from the article. Uh, Bear, one of the writers said, humans are hardwired for compassion and the wisdom of crowds or the tribes that gather online each day will weed out bad ideas. I don't know what internet he was looking at. <laughs> Right? I, don't, I don't know any internet that has weeded out bad ideas. It seems to foment bad ideas, right? But here we are, and, and, and so we're, we want to go, man, is there any relevance to these? Why in the world would we want to study these, as they're called in Hebrew, the 10 words? Why would we want to take time? Why, why in general should we even go back to the Old Testament? Why do books like Leviticus exist that are just filled with law after law after law? And so why would we look at them? So I want to look at the law and I want you to think of this in light of the Ten Commandments today and I'll give you four reasons why I think it's good for us to, to study uh, the law versus the wisdom of crowds. So here's number one. Number one, I want you to see it. The law teaches us about God, okay? So look at uh, chapter 20, verse one. And God spoke all these words. Now let's just stop here for a moment. I want us to reflect on this. The first lesson is that God is gonna speak and God is gonna reveal some things. And remember the context. Very often we will go and jump to the Ten Commandments and I know, but do you realize how terrifying it was for Israel to hear these 10 words? Remember, there's lightning, there's thunder, there's fire, there's cloud, there's earthquakes. Israel has gathered, they're hearing the thundering voice of God come out and speak to them and God speaks in this audible voice that all of them can hear. 
Now, it's really important that God speaks. Because if God didn't speak, we could know nothing about him. But God has spoken, and let me say this, extravagantly. Like he's not just given us this little tiny, like I can't know anything about God. Yes, you know, we've said it before. God is like an iceberg. What we know about him is like the part above the surface and there's, you know, nine-tenths of an iceberg below the surface. But God, that one-tenth is a massive amount of information for us to learn about God. In fact, Psalm 19 is gonna say, the heavens declare the glory of God. The earth is handiwork. And then he says, day to day pours forth speech. Creation is the spoken word of God to us. I want to reveal something. That's why Paul's going to say in Romans 1, people without excuse for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has revealed it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his divine power, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. He speaks in creation. He speaks in the word of God so that we, we, we realize that when we, you know, walk through our Bible, we hear Paul say to Timothy that, Timothy, understand this, that, that scripture is breathed out by God. This is God speaking to us. When you open your Bible, you understand this, you're hearing the voice of God. We've teased about this in the past, right? You want to hear, the, you want to hear the, the, the voice of God? Read your Bible. You want to hear it audibly? Read it out loud. You can hear God's voice in the words. And then we come to the New Testament and, and we find out Jesus is the word of God made flesh. So he who has seen me has seen the Father. So God speaks. God opens his mouth here on Sinai and he, and he starts talking. And now let's look what he says. Look at verse two. He says, I am the Lord your God. Look at your Bible for a second with me. Do you see the word Lord? You're going to notice almost all modern translations are going to put that in small caps, that word Lord. That's because it's, an, it's, it's the covenant name Yahweh. Maybe you've heard this, Y-H-W-H. Um, and this is God identifying himself. So God starts off with like an introduction. In some ways we can say, here, here's my name. And this is really important that God does that. Because think about it, just like in our day, so it was in their day. If I were to say to almost, what, 90% of anybody in our culture, do you believe in God? Yes. Right? God ha is, a, is a word that has been emptied of its meaning. So, so it was in Moses' day, there were a lot of gods, a lot of play, people would have pointed to their God. That was no foreign concept. So what does he do? The Lord, your God. See, if you ask people, do you believe in God? 90%, let's just for sake of argument, would say yes. If you said, oh, do you believe in the God of the Bible? That would shrink. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God? Shrink even further, right? So God's filling this empty skin of a word with meaning. He's telling you who I am. I'm the covenant-keeping God. But then he says, look at that. He says, I am your God. Now, now, we've done this before, but bear with me. Let's remember how you conjugate verbs in English. Remember, like we have I, you, he, she, it, we, uh, you, again, and then they, right? So, this is first person, you know, and then we get to, we get to the second person or, or, or first person plural or whatever it is, right? So, so here, here's what I want you to do. The two U's, one is first person plural, one is, one is second person plural, uh, first person singular, second person plural. So, so, so um, what's happening when he says, 
when he says you, when he says, I'm, I'm your God. Uh, fascinating, he actually uses the singular form of you. I am your God. Like each one of you, I've rescued you, I've saved you. Like I'm, 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 a, I'm a personal God, right? Now, we tend to take that as it's a private thing. One of my professors in seminary used to say, Christianity is very personal, it's never private. It's not a privatized religion like we, we, people want to believe today, but it is a very personal thing. God's saying to all of Israel, I'm your God. I'm you individually. I'm, I'm there for you, for each one of you. I am the Lord, your God. Then he's going to begin to speak these 10 commandments. He's going to give them the law. Now, what's happening when he does that? He's revealing his character. God is, God is if you will, he's giving you his likeness in precepts. I'm showing you who I am. So like we could say this, you can know something about the lawgiver by the laws that he, she, they enact, right? If we are a culture, if we as Americans don't value life, then we will have laws that don't value life that allow euthanasia, that allow abortion. Like we are a reflection of our law givers. God is a reflection of the law he gives. It's revealing to us his character. It's a, there's a holiness, there's a purity, there's a goodness, there's a graciousness to them. In fact, so much so that God says, when you walk and when you are obedient to me, you're becoming more like me. You're becoming more like Jesus. You're, you're actually displaying, if you will, God back to himself. That's why we have the law. See, see a lot of us as Christians, we, we're programmed now because of the gospel and because of grace. It's kind of we have, we have set grace and law in opposition to each other. And I'm gonna talk about this in a moment. But, but we talk about it as though the law, if I go back to all that Old Testament stuff, that's Old Testament, that's law, that's bad, that's legalism. No, it's not. In fact, Paul's gonna say in Romans that the law is holy and righteous and good. He's gonna say, is the law sin? Which is the way a lot of us think about it. Paul's gonna say, by no means. David's gonna say the law is perfect. Why do they talk like this? because the law reveals the righteousness of God. It shows us his perfection, his beauty, his purity, his holiness. That's the first thing you've got to understand. As you read the 10 commandments, think about this. What are they telling me about God? What am I learning about a God who says thou shalt not bear false witness, don't steal, don't murder, right? I'm learning something about this God that we serve. That's the first thing that we learn. The second thing is, is the law shows us how to live. Okay, so, so watch this. Go, go down to verse two. He says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he's gonna give us the law starting in verses three and going forward. I want you to notice, and we've said this before, but it bears repeating because you're gonna see this pattern all through scripture. What happens? God doesn't start with the law. God starts with the gospel. That's why I've called this good news. God's saying, listen, I'm, I, 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 b- before I asked you to do anything, I did everything. 
right? I have redeemed you. I have saved you. I didn't, I didn't come and say, keep my law and then you can be saved. He says, no, I'm the one who already did all this saving. Now I'm asking you how to live. Grace that saves always precedes law that demands. Be careful, mom and dad. Be careful, those of you who are discipling others. We don't start from the place of the law. We start from grace. And grace then leads into law. So this is why we said before, if you want to talk about I've been saved, okay, this is why James is going to say, man, don't tell me about your faith. Show me your works. I want to see that there's actually, it's bearing fruit in your life, right? But hear me, grace and law go together. It's not, it's not, I don't give you law so that you can be redeemed. I've given you law because you've been redeemed. That's where this is coming from. And that obedience is always going to follow. Sanctification always follows justification. Obedience always follows the transformation of grace. Always. And this is supposed to be the pattern that we see in Scripture. Jesus is going to say, why do you say you love me but don't do what I say? Right? If you loved me, here's where you start then man, you're, there will be a pattern of life that comes out. This is why Paul's gonna say, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Like, like you're supposed to live, this thing has been done for you. Now, now walk out of love, walk in a manner that's worthy. I was, I was just reading uh, this morning in my newsfeed about some of this, the things that took place yesterday uh, uh, for 9-11. And uh, on my newsfeed pops up this article from the Washington Post. It was called An Elegy for Two Decades of Loss. Uh, I think we, we have it this service. L listen to this. At the site in Shankville, Pennsylvania, where Flight 93 crashed, remember that, the hijackers' apparent plans to attack the U.S. foiled by a rebellion among passengers. Relatives of those who died questioned whether the country had gone off course. So here's relatives, Flight 93, wondering what's happened to us. And listen to this. Here's a quote. Are we worthy of their sacrifice? Asked Gordon Feld, whose brother Edward was a passenger on the doomed flight. Do we as individuals, communities, and a country conduct ourselves in a manner that would make those that sacrificed so much and fought so hard proud of who we've become? It's like we, we, we get this intuitively. That when that kind of thing has been done for us, there is something that says, I ought to walk in a manner that's worthy of that. I ought to walk in a manner that lives up to what's been done for me. And now you take that and multiply it by what Jesus has done. J.C. Ryle says this, does the debtor in jail love the friend who unexpectedly and undeservedly pays all his debts, supplies him with fresh capital, and takes him into partnership with himself? Does the prisoner of war love the man who at the risk of his own life breaks through the enemy's lines, rescues him, sets him free? Do the drowning sa sa sailor love the man who plunges into the sea, dives after him, catches him by the hair of his head, and by a mighty effort saves him from a watery grave? He's saying, of course they do. And this is why Paul, again, we're going to get to the New Testament and we see how this bears out through the life of Christ. He's saying, now walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. The Ten Commandments are a response to the unbelievable grace, the unbelievable redemption of God and saying, now live this way. Live for God's glory by being obedient to these commands. 
What if, what if we actually just obeyed the Ten Commandments? How different would our world be if we could even get there? Right? Um, have you thought about this? Like the atheists are saying, no, there's old irrelevant. Look, if we threw up all 10 of those commandments, you'd look at that and go, yeah, those make sense because that's the world we live in. I do with my body what I want to do. You know, I've, all those things just make perfect sense. And look where we are. What if we really were able to live the 10 commandments? You wouldn't have copyright laws. You wouldn't have intellectual property infringements or rights. There, uh, there, there would be no very little crime, uh, I dare say. There, there, th we would eliminate wars. There wouldn't be defense budgets. Um, you, you wouldn't have uh, courthouses or courtrooms or, or uh, uh, prisons and jails. You probably wouldn't even have a need for lawyers, right? There'd be no contracts. It would just be people. Just to, th that's why I say the law's beautiful. The law is wonderful. I, I heard somebody say the other day, they, the, the federal government commissioned, this is crazy to me, commissioned one of its agencies, I don't know who it was, Office of Management and Budget, I don't know, but they commissioned them to go out and figure out how many laws are out there. And it took them five years to come back and say, can't do the job. That's impossible. There are so many laws. Can you imagine if there were just 10 and we actually lived these 10? how different our world would be. The law shows us how to live, and it's beautiful. You don't covet. You don't steal anything. You put it in honest days, labor. There's no murder. I mean, we could just go on and on. It's unbelievable how different our world would be. The law is showing us how to live because it's showing us the character of God. But the third thing I want you to see, one of the reasons we want to study it is because the law is delightful. And this is how the psalmists talk, right? Look to Psalm 19, Psalm 119. They just extol the, the, in weird ways. Oh, how I love your law. Oh, I meditate on it day and night. It's perfect. It's good. It rejoices the heart. It is, it is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It's sweeter than the honey, even the honeycomb. I have never said that about a stop sign or the IRS. <laughs> oh, how I love paying my taxes. Oh, it's a delight to my soul. It's sweeter than honey. That's because it's not the law of God. It's the law of man. But this is how this is how the biblical, Paul's going to say, I delight in the law of God. Why do they talk like this? Um, I can't help it. I have to quote C.S. Lewis one more time. C.S. Lewis, I think he's really helpful here. He says in his reflections on the psalm. Now, now I, don't, I don't think this captures all of it, but I think this is helpful. He says this, I can understand that a man can and must respect these statutes, talking about the, the commands of the law, and try to obey them and assent to them in his heart, but it's very difficult to find out how they could be, so to speak, delicious, sweeter than honey. How they exhilarate in the law of God. So you hear what he's doing? He's puzzling like you and I are. How can they say this about the law of God? How can they say it's, it's precious and lovely and delightful and I, I want to eat it like the honeycomb and all these things? And he answers his question this way. He says, their delight in the law is a delight in having touched 
firmness. Like the pedestrian's delight in feeling the hard road beneath his feet after a false shortcut has long entangled him in muddy fields. You hear the picture? You ever done that? Talking to friends who went hiking through Alaska a couple of years back and they were talking about at one point hitting these marshlands in the middle of summer and you're just slogging, slogging. You're up to your, 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 your calves, right? your, your thighs in mud. It's just like it's very difficult, hard going. Can you imagine the joy, the elation of hitting firm ground like oh oh that's the idea I love that Lewis makes that point like this is a this is this moment of like oh yes there it is there's firmness the law of God is a delightful way to live your feet touch firmness But the last thing I want you to see, and I want to walk through this, is that the law reveals our need for a savior. This is really the most important part of the law, perhaps we might say. So, okay, the law's good. The law's holy and righteous and good, Paul says. The law's good if it's used lawfully. Um, But here's the problem with the law. The law can't save us. The law cannot save anyone, right? The power of the law, and you gotta get this, the power of the law is in its ability ability to show people that we can't save ourselves. That's what the law does to show us that we need someone else to save us. We need in New Testament and Old Testament language, we need a savior, somebody to come along and rescue us. Now, how does this work? Okay. If you think about it, what does God do here? God makes a covenant with his people. Okay, so Israel, I'm making a covenant. I have brought you out. I, have, I, am, I am going to, you know, I'm going to call you to myself. You're my people. I'm your God, and I will walk with you. But you must keep the law. You must promise to obey everything. If you do, oh, it's going to be glorious. But if you fail, you're going to become a a byword. You're going to become a place for jackals and hyenas. And people are going to just gasp when they see you. Now, you'd think you'd hear that and go, man, I want to do the right thing, right? In fact, Israel recognizes this. If you turned over a few pages, you get to Exodus 24, verse 7, and you'll hear Israel saying, everything you do, God, everything you command, God will do. If you know the story, they didn't, did they? They they failed miserably to do everything that God commanded. But that's the standard. So you say, well, wait, 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 there... I thought the idea was God saved them. He saved them from Egypt. He did, he did. And and he did that without any initiative of their own. He rescued them, he pulled them out. But it was pointing to a bigger salvation. It was the story of salvation for them, just like it's a story of salvation for us. I'm gonna rescue you. I'm gonna redeem you. But there's an eternal salvation that is still coming. And in order for you to reach and achieve, if you will, that eternal salvation, you must be perfectly righteous. In fact, if you scoot over to Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, you'll hear this. Listen to this. Here's Moses describing to the people what God, what God had done. He said, and the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes. This is after he's given them just a ton of stuff to remember, not just 10 commandments. 
And then he goes on in verse 25, chapter six of Deuteronomy and says, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. Now, did you hear what this just said? It will be righteousness for us if we do this. If we can manage to perfectly keep the law, then we will be righteous. That's the standard. If they can do it, eternal life, you are saved, all will be well. What's the problem? They just can't do it. They cannot achieve the perfection that God calls them to. This is what the law does. The law is, is look, it's, it's, a, it's a mirror. What do you do when you go to a mirror, right? You look at your face, you're like, okay, not so good. Hair's all disheveled, dirt on my face. I've never seen anybody take the mirror to try to straighten their hair, to clean their face. No, they realize, oh, I gotta go to the water. I gotta go to something else. But all this mirror can do is give me an accurate reflection of what's going on with me. That's what's happening here, right? This is, this is the law showing us the problem, but lacking any power to make the difference in us, lacking any power to transform my sinful nature and get me up out of this. All I'm done is confronted. But here's the thing, it actually gets worse. The law doesn't just show me like a mirror. The law actually provokes me, prods me into sin. Pa Paul, li listen to Paul in, in uh, Romans chapter 7. He says, what should we say then? The law is sin? I've already quoted this. And he says, by no means. Most negative you know, rebuttal in Greek that Paul can, make, you know, it's this, it's this word that's being, that there's, there's no way it's sin. The law is good, it's holy, it's righteous. He says, yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Hear what he says? So the law comes along and I thought I was doing great until I actually saw the standard and it tells me, you just use covetousness as an example. You know why he uses covetousness? Because covetousness isn't just an external thing. It's I realize there's something going on inside my heart. Paul says, I realized I was out of alignment. The law was calling me to one thing and I wasn't doing it. I actually saw this in me. And then he says this, but it goes further. It doesn't just show me my problem. It doesn't just provoke that sin. It actually kills me. But sin, verse eight of chapter seven of Romans, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when sin came alive, I died. You already says? I thought everything was great, right? I, I, but, but, but here sin comes along, seizes this opportunity through the law, shows me my transgression, and now I can't, uh, 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 I can't not sin. And it's producing in me all these things and through that killed me so that now it's not just it shows me my sin. It's not just it provokes it. It kills me. It subjects me to the wrath of God. So where does this leave us? Where does it leave Israel? God's gonna give them the law more than just the 10 commandments. 
you're gonna see that Israel is bound to keep a law they could not obey. They simply could never live up to this. So rather than bring salvation, it exposed their sin, it showed them, it provoked their sin, it subjected them to, to death, it subjected them to wrath. Now, why would God do this? Why give the law? And the answer is so that they would believe the good news. They would believe in the provision that God had given them. Listen to how Martin Luther, the great reformer, says this. He says, after uh, the law has humbled, terrified, and completely crushed you so that you're on the brink of despair, then see to it that you know how to use the law correctly. For its function and use is not only to disclose the sin and wrath of God, but to drive us to Christ. Charles Spurgeon in his typical picturesque way says, as the sharp needle prepares the way for the thread, so the piercing law makes a way for the bright silver thread of divine grace. See what God's doing? I want them to believe the good news. So guess what God's gonna do in the Old Testament? He's gonna bring along a whole sacrificial system. You can't keep the law. It's not possible. So there's gonna be these sacrifices and these sacrifices will atone for the sin. But the crazy part is that the Old Testament also says the blood of bulls and goats sacrifices don't take away any sin. So what's happening? It's, it's Israel is looking to what these sacrifices signify that God is going to cover over the sin with a blood sacrifice. They're looking for it. They don't know. Paul calls it a mystery. It was hidden to them. They, they weren't quite sure all the clarity of it, but they looked forward to a final sacrifice where God would finally wipe away their sin. So, so, so God's plan was always to send a savior. And the plan of salvation for Israel, you gotta get this, the plan of salvation for Israel was the same plan of salvation as for you and I. They were saved by God's grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. They just looked forward to a mystery they weren't clear on. We are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. We know what the mystery is. We look backward to Jesus and we understand that's what satisfied God. That's what takes care of our sin. So here's the thing. If you can keep the law perfectly, well, you're gold, right? You don't need Jesus. You don't need Jesus if you can keep the law perfectly, but you can't. No one can, right? Because the law is not just external obedience. Man, I don't murder. I'm not sleeping with a woman who's not my wife or a man who's not my husband. I'm not stealing anything. No, the Bible, that's why we're gonna get to the New Testament in the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus is gonna go, let me show you what the law really means, right? If a man or a woman looks on somebody who's not their husband or wife and lusts after them, you've committed adultery. And everybody listening to that goes guilty. Guilty. If you, if you hold a kind of hatred, which by the way is not this visceral, I wish I could put a knife in somebody's throat, it's an apathy that says I don't care what happens to you. If you feel that way about somebody, you're a murderer. 
And everybody goes guilty. And so it's going to be 10 commandments, 10 times you're guilty. What's God doing? We've said it here so often, Thomas Watson's famous quote, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. God is showing us the bitterness of our sin. This is why Paul can say unabashedly, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have all become worthless. No one is righteous, not even one. That's our predicament, you understand this? This is where we find ourselves. Now look, it's, I know it's not popular to preach on the law. It's just very needful. Because apart from the law, right, you can't see your sin. You'll never be confronted to the place where you see that you need a savior. That's what's happening here. See, when you see that you're incapable of perfectly keeping the law of God, then you're gonna say with Paul, you're gonna listen to Paul in Romans 3 and it's finally gonna make sense to you, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness that comes apart from the law, You hear what he's saying? I don't get my righteousness by by keeping the law perfectly. I can't. God calls me to walk in obedience, but that perfect righteousness is done by faith in the one who did it perfectly, Jesus Christ. That's why Paul's gonna say in Philippians chapter three, right? He's got this wonderful section that says, man, I wanna know, I count everything as loss except for the, uh, the exceeding worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, I hope that someday to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. There it is. This is what God's doing. God is provoking our sin. God is gonna help us come face to face with the fact that we are sinful, but at the same time, he's gonna fill those of us who have say, well, I believe in Jesus. I have laid hold of that. I have put my faith in him that I have hope because I can't keep the law perfectly. Yes, the grace of God is in me. Yes, the power of God is working in me to help me to be obedient. And yet there is still besetting sin that causes me to be disobedient. And if it weren't for the finished perfect work of Jesus Christ, I would be doomed. So so listen, depends on what side of that you're on. Are you on the side that says I've never put my faith, my hope in Jesus Christ? I really was kind of hoping that that I could be a good enough law keeper. Let, let Let me tell you, here's the problem. The, 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 the grade scale in heaven is pass or fail. And it's not pass if you get 70%. It's a pass or fail that says if you miss one, you're out. It's perfect. And everybody's gonna fail this. It's 100% or nothing. If you're on the other side of that, then that's why it drives you to Jesus and go, I can't. Who can do this? What's the answer, class? No one. Well, one has, and his name's Jesus, and I put my faith and my hope in him. 
if I'm on the other side of that and I've already put my faith and hope in him, then what happens when I find like Paul, there's things in myself I hate, I don't want to, and I say, who will rescue me? Who will rescue me from this body of death? And Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And then launches into Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's great news. The law is really good news. For apart from the law, you would never know that you needed Jesus. But with the law, you know. You know. And you run to him. And you take refuge in him. And someday if you do that and you put your faith in him, you will be, as Paul says, found in him, not having a righteousness that comes through the law, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And God will welcome you to him as perfect righteousness. Let's pray. Father, oh, how we love your law because it shows us your perfection, your purity. It shows us how to live It's a delight to find firmness, but God, most of all, it shows us our need of a Savior. And Jesus, thank you that you have satisfied all the demands of the law. You have lived perfectly, and then that perfect, spotless person shed your own blood in our place on our behalf for our sin. And all that's left for us is to not claim our own self-made spiritual resume, but to put our faith in Jesus. May that happen today, oh God. May there be people who are listening to my voice right now who realize that they're looking to their own merit to try to make them right before you. And now they've heard the standard is 100% or nothing and there's nobody that has met that. We've, we've, we've violated that in the last 10 seconds. And so Father, help us. And I pray that they would now run, flee, fly to Jesus, take refuge in him, and someday be found in you, Jesus, having the righteousness, the real righteousness that comes through faith in you. Do that today, God. We love you, we praise you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.